2: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian humanist podcast. This is episode 201, uh, which we have decided to treat as our little milestone because 200 was part of our grand crossover twilight zone special. We hope listeners, you've been enjoying those and this will be a good opportunity if you haven't done so yet to subscribe to the Christian feminist podcast, as well as sectarian review book of nature, city of man, all of our podcasts are doing, or almost all of them are doing episodes on the twilight zone. I imagine it'll be a good deal of fun, but we are back to our regular episodes. It is election day in America as this hits the internet. Uh, so you'll find out, uh, what we'll be talking about on election day here in a moment. But first I should welcome two friends who have been doing this podcast thing for seven years now. Uh, 201 regularly numbered episodes. And of course, uh, I'm sure we'll mention the numbering system at some point today, but one of them is David Grubbs coming at you from, uh, a swamp. I'm going to guess somewhere around Houston, Texas. David, how are you doing?
0: Ribbit, ribbit, ribbit. <laughs> Good morning. How are you, sir?
1: <laughs> I'm doing all right. I thought that was a joke about Houston humidity. Well, it's that.
2: And also that he's got a frog in his throat.
0: Yep. 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 Feeling a little froggy today.
2: So it works on several levels. Uh, the, the person uh, questioning the construction of that joke is Michael Farmer. He is coming at you from St. Bonifacius, Minnesota and Crown College. Michael, how are you doing?
1: Coming at you down that just dusty road. Good loving. <laughs> I got a truckload. <laughs> so that's how I'm doing this morning.
2: Uh, that, that, <laughs> that sounds better than I'm doing, Michael. So I'll uh, I'll take that. I'll take that.
1: And yesterday um, in class, I sang "Stand by Your Man" and "Sympathy for the Devil," so I don't know what's happening to me, but I don't like it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think the brief answer is you've got some kind of uh, disorder from me, Michael, because I I do that more often than I prefer to admit.
1: <laughs> hmm.
2: But uh, in addition to our uh, Twilight Zone episodes, I'm going to recommend that you go ahead and listen to uh, "City of Man," our podcast show here on the network uh they have interviewed a third party candidate they've done some really good episodes on uh you know the upcoming election and they will be releasing a presidential election post-mortem on november 9th the day after this one releases uh it promises to be good i mean i've I've really been enjoying that show for the few months that they've been doing that show
1: unlike the Uh, results of the election that show (laughs) yeah promises to be good
2: yeah yes
1: yes
0: and, we've got and, a real alien
1: versus predator situation nice oh
0: God. <laughs> and, and and it's a a, a politics show because because they're all they're all podcast shows
2: oh did i say podcast show
0: yeah it's all right
2: okay all right all right well it's it's been that kind of morning already well at any rate our uh subject matter today uh i didn't actually plan for it to drop on election day but it's kind of fitting Uh, It is the treatise In Praise of Folly by Desiderius Erasmus. Since this is uh, something like a 200th episode, only one off, uh, (laughs) we decided we'd uh, take an episode to uh, talk about the gentleman who graces the top of our website, Desiderius Erasmus. And this is, uh, I would say, the text that most people have heard of, if they've heard of anything, by Erasmus. Uh, It's not one that I've met a whole lot of people who have read, but Today, you're going to hear from at least three people who have. So, David, let's go ahead and get rolling. I mean, in his dedication to Thomas More, Erasmus says that this was basically a road trip project, uh, mm-hmm. something to occupy his time so we wouldn't end up you know, writing a new version of the Canterbury Tales on his way to England from Italy. So whether we believe that or not, I'm skeptical. Uh, Praise of Folly strikes me as part of the same tradition as Plato's Symposium or Plato's Phaedrus, uh, these sort of rhetorical demonstrations that were popular in ancient Greece and in other periods of certain forces or certain gods or certain heroes for the sake of both thinking interesting thoughts and for displaying rhetorical virtuosity. So how do you see this fitting into that tradition and into the culture of early 16th century Europe?
0: Well, in all of those ways you just said next. No, no. (laughs) Um, yeah now this is the this is the classical mode called encomium uh or in praise of uh that's that's what's going on here and you referenced uh to uh uh two of plato's dialogues um uh, symposium and phaedrus uh in symposium you have a a, a drinking party a symposium um, in which the different participants are competing in their uh, in their praises of love. Right? So this one is uh, symposium is largely there, are, you know, there are some who are better at it than others uh, as you're supposed to be gathering as you listen to symposium or as you read through the symposium, but uh, it's it's more serious. Uh, in the Phaedrus, you get something that I think is a little bit closer to what Erasmus is doing. Um, the, uh, Phaedrus begins with, uh, Socrates meeting this, uh, uh, student, this, this, this young man, uh, who, uh, Phaedrus, who talks about having listened to a rhetorician in this back in the city, uh, deliver a speech in which a, uh, a stranger, uh, uh, presents a presents the argument that that his suit for love should be accepted um, instead of that of the beloved. That that the stranger, the non-lover, uh, is a would 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 ironically be a better lover than the person who actually loves you. All right. So so it's this kind of uh, counterintuitive um, against the grain encomium. In Phaedrus, that I think uh, Erasmus is, is is kind of setting up because what he's doing is he's 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 praising folly itself, the the all all different sorts of foolishness. And I guess as we get into this, we're going to have to kind of define uh, what what kinds of things does he include under under folly. Um, now, of course, uh, Phaedrus uh, ends with um, Socrates' first. Delivering his own encomium in the same style, but then turning around and reversing it with a more earnest encomium um, in praise of love um, and the lover uh, attempting to correct the sorts of uh, errors that are that are made in the uh, in the encomium um, that that celebrates the stranger over the lover. So uh, it it might be interesting to see in what ways uh, the praise of folly by Erasmus invites uh, a, a sort of uh, invites counter encomia as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is, why is this happening? Well, um, we're in the Renaissance. Uh, Erasmus is our, he's our poster boy for Renaissance humanism. Ad fontes back to the sources is their motto. And Erasmus is, um, is as enthusiastic about that as any of them. So, uh, and you can see that right in his dedication to Moore. When his first defense of what he, of what he's writing here is uh, is that others, other famous authors in the past have written in the same vein. It uh, lists, you know, Virgil, Glaucon, Plutarch, um, Lucian. Uh, he, he lists a number of of classical writers as having done. Uh, in his assessment, similar things. And this is for him a defense. Uh, so engaging in rhetoric in a, in a classical form with classical precedence is the sort of thing that we would expect from someone like Erasmus. Mm-hmm. But there's also this idea that, uh, with a certain level of skill comes a possibility for play. um, All I know of playing musical instruments is 10 weeks of cello that I took when I was, I don't know, maybe 10 (laughs) at a local community center. Um, I, I, I took 10 weeks of cello. My brother took 10 weeks of violin. My sister took 10 weeks of flute. See, I knew that at the end of these 10 weeks, our parents were going to get us one of these instruments and we would be stuck playing it for the rest of our natural lives. And I chose cello because it was the most expensive option. And I was pretty sure my parents wouldn't spring for it. (laughs) So, um, in 10 weeks, I learned enough cello to be frustrated with my inability to play it better. I will never jam with my friends. Right. I will never sit down and just sort of doodle around with a cello and come up with new and interesting things to do, um, it will never become a means of fun for me, because I have not reached the level of skill at which play is possible. Um, In in a similar kind of way, uh, Erasmus defends what he's doing here as, as a kind of diversion for learning that this is something that those who've acquired a certain level of knowledge um, in all of these different sources and uh, subjects uh, who've developed a certain degree of skill in in rhetoric and uh, vocabulary and figures of speech and all those sorts of things, um, this is the sort of play that someone who's developed that level of skill uh, can enjoy and And there's something delightful in just being able to play with the skill mm-hmm. um, which which I can understand. so uh, those those are his main ways of of kind of defending his project. But two, that I think they also model largely what's kind of going on in Renaissance humanism at this point. They're no longer just sort of earnestly seeking out the sources so that they can imitate them slavishly. Um, there's also a, uh, a, a degree of skill, a degree of comfort, a degree of of erudition that is developed to where free play is possible, not just imitation. Mm-hmm. What would you add to that?
2: Well, I think uh, you know the broad outline you certainly hit there. I mean, a couple of the particular places where Erasmus is definitely playing with it is uh, parallel to what a lot of the speakers do in the symposium. That's why the t- that text recommended itself to me first. Mm-hmm. Uh, Erasmus attempts a sort of farcical genealogy of folly. Uh, mm-hmm. She is the daughter of Plutus and of youth. She was surrounded in her young years by hedone, pleasure, lethe, forgetfulness, Anoia, mindlessness, comus. If you've read any Milton, you know what that means. Uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, I mean, he is... Uh, You know, a Christian writer, obviously, uh, presumably uh, not doing this unironically, but again, you know, playing around uh, using the same scales, if you will, as Plato did. Mm -hmm. Uh, He kind of gives this mock genealogy of folly that I think is a a good deal of fun when you read it next to Plato's work. Uh, You know, beyond that, I mean, you do get this. Sense, Even when you read it in translation, and of course we should acknowledge that this is not originally written in English, uh, but you get a sense of the skill, just of the construction on a sentence level. Uh, He's definitely showing off his chops, right? Uh Um, And unfortunately, I didn't highlight any particular sentences that I wanted to go to, but just a sense that I get as I read that we're dealing with a, a true master here of written prose uh, and of course, you know, David, you and I both use the, uh, copia of Erasmus when mm-hmm. we teach rhetoric and, you know, uh, he's definitely got, you know, some ways of teaching that, uh, as far as I know, Europe really hadn't seen the likes of, uh, and, and honestly, I mean, make it a, a good deal of fun, kind of like you see here. So, uh, right. he's, he's definitely, like you said, you know, doing jazz there in the early 16th century.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's really something that I think sets, um, and, and when you brought up the uh, decopia, um, it's kind of a perfect example uh, of how the imitative modes of learning in which they're simply mm-hmm. um, memorizing, reciting, sticking very, very closely to classical patterns, classical models, um, how decopia um, with its it, Erasmus's decopia approach with its its emphasis on how many possible variations can you come up with? How many mm-hmm. different ways can you do the same thing is really is really kind of pulling away from that um, that sort of strict imitative, nothing which lacks a precedent is is in good taste um, that that kind of aesthetic. but instead, mm-hmm. the one who can, continue to do the same thing in many 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 different ways um, that is the one who who has achieved excellence and that's really what praise of folly is It's how many different ways can to take a run at the same task mm-hmm. and continue to accomplish it again and again and again and again from different right right angles
2: and, and it's interesting now that you mentioned that he also uh, targets that tendency in education of you know being strict imitators of the classics. Uh, in his dialogue, the Ciceronian or the Kickeronian, if you mm. want to pronounce it Virgilian-like, uh, huh. you know, where he he's just merciless going after people who, you know, insist that the only good rhetoric is the kind that imitates the precise syntax and vocabulary of Cicero, and if you deviate from that, then you are somehow corrupting it. Right. Well, Michael, I, I want to address the way that Folly and therefore Erasmus writes about women before we get too far, uh, just because if any of our readers read this and, you know, think that we haven't noticed it, uh, we, <laughs> would be, we would be fools indeed. So reading the jabs at women along the way in this piece brings up one of the great tensions inherent in living within a tradition, namely that 21st century readers are going to find odious much of what Erasmus writes about women, but it's hard to say whether it would have been simply typical in his moment or even sympathetic by comparison to his counterparts. Even harder, of course, is what we in the 21st century are to do with it. So Michael, uh, could you step on that landmine for me?
1: I am not really qualified to talk about it in a broader context of 16th century literature. One of you early modernists is going to have to do that for me. (laughs) Um, Folly herself, it's worth noting, is a female goddess. Her mother youth is called a lovely nymph. So vice in in this essay is pretty well coded as female, even though most of the people whom Folly talks about are men. So most of the Mm -hmm. actual foolish people we meet, although not all, are men, and yet um, foolishness itself seems to be a womanly quality. Uh, She says it's foolish for a man to take a wife, and she says that all married couples would divorce except that men and women are continuously flattering each other and are ignorant of each other's true natures. She also agrees with Plato's confusion over whether woman is a rational creature or a beast. I, I that doesn't sound like Plato to me. That my my memory is that that's Aristotle. Am I wrong there, or is he wrong?
2: Um, it's, it's definitely more explicit in Aristotle.
1: Because Plato, I mean, in the Republic anyway, has a very high place for women. He he he. Posits at least a sort of gender equality that I think would have been quite unusual mm-hmm. for the ancient Greeks. So it's it's weird. Right, to me right. That, it's weird to and me then that Erasmus in, holds up him as the example. Right, of, and then uh,
2: in Symposium, of course, uh, Socrates says that he was taught the actual ways of eros by a woman, Diotima. So there, there's some ambiguity there, to be sure.
1: Right. Uh, the idea that a woman might be wise, he says, is akin to a man teaching a cow to dance. Huh. Uh and and uh here's a here's a great sentence. An ape is an ape, though clad in scarlet, so a woman is a woman still, that is to say foolish, let her put on whatever wizard she please. Uh Now, you could say, this is a satirical essay, Erasmus doesn't actually mean these things, but then you have to ask yourself, who's the joke on? Because it it seems to me the joke is on the people whom Folly is praising here, and Folly is praising these women for this. So even though it's satirical, I would say the the butt of the satire, at least in in this case, is women. Mm -hmm. On the other hand... Folly says that women are foolish because they devote their lives to pleasing men, and in that case, it's much less clear to me who the, who's the joke on. Uh, that that's the, that's the one place where it seems like Erasmus might be saying something positive about women behind the layers of irony, that, that mm. women are foolish when they define themselves by men instead of doing whatever it is women are supposed to do suppose not mm-hmm. being clad in scarlet like an ape.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All him <them> scarlet clad apes.
1: <laughs> so I, I don't know what to do with it. I I mean one thing you can do is to say, well, Erasmus is the product of his time. Again I'm not sure I can I'm not sure I can make that case specifically. And but because he's the product of, of his time, we just have to imagine what a twenty first century Erasmus would do and kind of forgive him the blindnesses of of his time the way we hope to be forgiven the blindness of blindnesses of our time, you know, by future generations, mm-hmm. as I like to tell my students when they get too uh, uppity about uh, about uh, morally condemning old books, you know. In a hundred years, we're all going to be monsters. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I I think that's probably the best way to do it. And yeah, I mean, I. I I don't know what it's like to be a woman and read this text, obviously, and I can't imagine if I were a woman I'd feel like wading through all the uh all the misogynist nonsense in order to get to the point but i'll you know I don't like this book anyway, so uh, <laughs> my cards are on the table. Am I missing something about gender? Am I not being fair to Erasmus
2: well honestly i mean the the conversation that occurred to me i mean certainly uh you have to confront i mean there are some just flat-out misogynist parts of this, right? Yeah. Uh, if, if you try to, I mean, paint it otherwise, I mean, you're putting, you know, I guess, green on an ape, uh, and it's still an ape, uh, which is to say a, a bad argument. Uh, but I, I, I guess, Michael, I mean, you know, the conversations that you and I have had about, you know, Martin Heidegger in particular, where both of us, you know, find some genuinely good content there, uh, I would say irrespective of the fact, in spite of the fact that he was, in fact, an anti-Semite, he was, in fact, a National Socialist, uh, I mean, puts me at least in tension with a lot of folks who say, well, he was an anti-Semite, he was a Nazi, therefore everything he said is completely off the table. Well,
1: and, and that's, what I, that's what I was getting at in saying – Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: We're all so answers I, eventually. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And, yeah. I, and I'm, I'm agreeing with you here. I'm not disagreeing with you.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, The one one point though that i think does need to be made is um Mm -hmm. we didn't we didn't bring this in uh which is boethius's consolation of philosophy Mm
2: -hmm. in which
0: lady wisdom is a lady and a good chunk of what she does in uh in consolation of philosophy is to praise the merits of wisdom in all of these different circumstances of life um and there, there's a good bit of encomium to wisdom that's taking place in Consolation of Philosophy. And it's in the mouth of wisdom, also a woman, um, mm-hmm. praising, uh, praising the virtues of, of the life of wisdom or the life of philosophy. So, um, you know, there's that too. Also, um, all of the arts were represented by muses so all uh and the muses were also female, so all of the different branches of learning are allegorized as as women so there is a you know i'm i'm not you know I'm not saying that this explains every misogynistic statement, but at least in making um and making folly a woman, it is as much a parody of the of the lady philosophy or the muses of the arts uh, mode of speaking about, about branches of learning uh, as it is partaking in the, in, in kind of um, misogyny of the day. There's Mm. parody going on here too. Yeah,
1: Mm. that's, that's true.
2: And I guess one other thing I, you know, uh, just to point to some recent work that I've enjoyed reading If you go over to our Christian Humanist Profiles feed, uh, an interview I did this summer with uh, Stephanie Semler about her book, A Person as a Lifetime, is especially interesting because, uh, to bring it back to Aristotle, uh, she is doing a distinctively feminist neo Aristotelian philosophy in that book. And, you know, that was a large part of our conversation. You know, I mean, how can you be an Aristotelian and a feminist? And, you know, uh, her, her answer basically was, watch me. <laughs> nice. So, but yeah, I mean... I mean re- I, reading I,
1: anybody is going to involve dealing with things that you don't agree with and, and, and that you find monstrous in some cases. Mm-hmm. So so there's nobody innocent in that regard. And you just got to decide if you think that the the points they're making are worth the the monstrous stuff that you find around them. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the difference between Heidegger and Erasmus in this case is that I don't see a whole lot in Heidegger's actual philosophy that sounds like not national socialism to me. You, You know, what you're dealing with there is the man versus the work. And maybe it's a little easier to separate it. It's a little like, it's a little like enjoying a Woody Allen movie. You know, you you know, you know. Woody Allen's done some things that that are that are morally reprehensible, but mm-hmm. for the most part, those don't show up in the movies. Okay, um, but, right. right. but Erasmus—it's right here on the page in front of you. And I don't—I don't know what Erasmus was like toward women in his personal life, and perhaps if he was very kind to women and he didn't—he didn't have this kind of sexist streak in his actual dealings with women, it, it would allow us to to. Put the uh, put the book into proper context, but I don't know that stuff. This is the only Erasmus I've ever read, mm-hmm. so um, I'm not I'm not really qualified to make that judgment.
0: Does the fact that this is dedicated to Thomas More give us anything to say about that?
1: Are, are you asking me because I don't know Thomas More either? Okay, 20th century yeah, Americanist, David, and I,
2: and, I, and I don't know what what punchline you're setting up there, David. So go ahead and um, follow
0: up on it. <laughs> I mean, one of the and and you know I, I'm. You know, in in no way am I a Moore scholar, but I've, like, read some bio on him for background stuff in Utopia. But, um, uh, he had daughters and apparently, um, saw to the education of his daughters in a way that was atypical, Mm -hmm. uh, in, in that, in that time period. So, you know, this is dedicated to someone who, um if what I've read represents it rightly uh, had an, had an atypical interest in that period for cultivating the intelligence of young women.
1: Hmm.
0: So not to say that Erasmus had signed up for the same kind of project, but still, I mean, I, I don't know that I would be, you know, super happy to get, a a a serious condemnation of something that i you know saw as a a, a really good thing as dedicated to me you know maybe, maybe that's why maybe... he dedicated
1: it to him <laughs> <laughs>
0: like hey idiot stop educating your daughters it's like dressing up a monkey something like that that would be awful that makes it worse yeah
2: it would <laughs>
1: I, I would just need to know more about who Erasmus was and about what his other works have to say about women before I could really tell you how to read *Praise of Folly* in that regard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a standalone document, I think if I were if I were a woman, I don't think I would want to read it. I mean, not that like my delicate constitution would keep me from reading <laughs> it, but I, I, I think I would get pretty mad at at some of the things he's saying. But I mean, maybe maybe that's part of the joke. I don't know. I, I lack the, I lack the background uh, knowledge necessary to get the joke. If that's the case.
2: Okay. All right. Well, David, I want to turn to another troubling part of Praise of Folly, uh, and again, I want to deal with these before we get into uh, some of the more famous bits. But uh, one troubling bit, I think even if we are dealing with a, a an extended joke like Michael just hinted at, is the notion that the madman, the simpleton, the self-deceived person, these folks ultimately enjoy a more pleasant life than those who are wise. Now, again, the, the tricky dynamic here is that this is a classical encomium. Uh, you know, Erasmus is, you know, doing his copia thing and, you know, trying to find another way to praise folly. But it seems like the moves here have real consequences for folks who think that truth matters. So, what do you do with these weird passages?
0: Mm. Um, so for first, he's making this kind of basic point uh, that fools um, the, the The basic point is that those who are insane or delusional or have a certain lack of of cognitive faculty, um, they don't know the fullness of life's pain. They're able to more fully um, lose themselves, perhaps, in the in in the pleasures of which they are capable, and in those kinds of ways, uh, are spared uh, a lot of the a lot of the pain, a lot of the suffering, a lot of the anxiety that the wise endure. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, uh, and and in a a certain way, I mean, you you can see how that's, that's a fair point. Um, my, you know, just now two year old son, um, is perfectly happy to sit in the floor and pull all the books off the shelf. (laughs) And he is just as happy as he could possibly be. And he has no idea that daddy's over there paying bills or whatever, you know? I mean, how many times have we have, 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 you know, pretty much all of us in adulthood kind of wished that we could just sit in front of a television, watch cartoons and eat cereal instead of doing serious adulty stuff, you know? Right. Um, it is, so, so on one hand, there's there's that there's there's kind of a fair point that he's making. Um, that in, in in a lot of ways, with wisdom, with knowledge, with a greater insight into one's situation, comes um, increased ways of uh, of of suffering. On the other hand, uh, it ignores well practically it ignores the kind of pain that delusion or undeveloped reason can cause. Mm -hmm. Um, again, reference to my son. Um, his favorite thing to do is to find the highest thing that he can ascend and then jump off. (laughs) Um, you know, he's, he's not full of smarts, you know, uh, he tends to be pretty banged up because that's his, that's one of his favorite things to do. Um, and at the moment, the fact that my son is still alive and in possession of, you know, his limbs and faculties and all the rest of it is that we just make sure that he can't climb the highest stuff. You know, um, well, you know, David,
1: the role of government is to curb evil, not not eliminate it.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. Um, but, you know, the Levitical law also said, "Put guardrails on your roof, man. <laughs> Um, you know, so in, in, in this way, you know, my little, my, my foolish little two year old son is defended by the wind by the wisdom of others, which if left to himself, um, his folly that makes him happy would get him killed. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, there is a whole trajectory in Socratic, Platonic, Aristotelian, Augustinian, Boethian, and you can just sort of go on. This is a long tradition, um, there's this whole trajectory in this long tradition of thought that real joy comes from knowing truth and pursuing virtue. And both of these reach their fullness in loving and knowing God. And that, um, it, you see it, um, and, and this is, you know, a bit of consolation of philosophy, Boethius that, uh, we were looking at in, uh, one of my cop glasses the other day, um, in which he 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 tells this he he, he turns into allegory the story of Circe from the Odyssey turning men into beasts and says that uh, essentially humans are are always kind of in this position poised between the beast and the god that that we never are kind of on a level field every action every choice um, every decision to pursue or sublimate passion is is a is a decision of assent or dissent and what folly is praising uh, she says that all animals are content with their natural limitations man alone oversteps his uh, what she's arguing is that um, she, she's 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 making an argument about the nature of the human that runs counter to, this other long tradition about the nature of the human. Um, she's essentially arguing that human, the human is just another one of the beasts. And if ridded of this burden of wisdom would be able to enjoy the freedom and the pleasure of the beast. And in that way, uh, echoes at least some of the ways that, uh, that Epicurus talks about the ultimate end of happiness being to avoid pain. You know, um, but uh, but, in so doing, there's uh what this great tradition that Erasmus is in there's these whole realms of of pleasure, of real good that come through through wisdom, through the pursuit of virtue that would be denied the person who contents themselves with the joys they share with a hog or a dog, right. Um, and it's, uh, the, the, this often quoted bit from C.S. Lewis in which he talks about humanity being content to sit and play with mud pies because they can't imagine the joy of holiday at the seaside. Um, that's, that's kind of what I get off of praise of folly. Um, there's, there, there's something serious here in. In saying that that life is really a higher state, um, and it's and it's an argument about uh, the nature of the of the human and what we're what we're meant to be.
1: Mm-hmm. To which I would add, um, John Stuart Mill says that it's better to be Socrates unsatisfied than a pig satisfied.
2: <laughs> I like that. I like that. Also
1: if you think back we talked about this a couple of years ago I think the Howarwas essay honor in the university where where he says yeah. if your students are unhappy maybe that's cuz it's good to be unhappy at this stage of life maybe like genuine happiness <laughs> is something that requires development something that you don't just automatically get because you're an existent human being in the world. Mhm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I I have to say I didn't find the uh this part of the essay troubling at all Nathan.
2: Okay, so you're you're gonna chalk this up to my uh, paranoia again?
1: No, I'm <laughs> gonna chalk it up to my uh, my being a Calvinist and an existentialist. So I suspect happiness when it occurs. <laughs> something se- something seems wrong.
2: Okay, yes. all right, all right. Well, and honestly, I mean, uh, as I kept re- reading, Michael, I mean, you know. Uh, I realized, I mean, what, what David nodded to at the beginning of the episode, namely that Erasmus is doing that copia thing. And what that means is sometimes your variations on the theme are going to contradict each other because after all, after this discussion, Erasmus says that folly inspires authors to write books, which doesn't seem like pigs (laughs) wallowing in mud. Folly inspires scientists to investigate the heavens. Folly inspires rulers to seek political authority. Folly inspires poets to tell stories. Folly inspires Danny Anderson to read Trilling. Uh, pretty much, you know, she goes through, you know, the shows on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. So, Michael, I mean, to what extent has our project grown as an ongoing homage to Folly?
1: Uh, probably a pretty good extent, uh, given the amount of time we have sunk into it and the, uh, the rather modest successes we've had in doing so. Well, I mean, maybe the modestness... Modesty? Mod- I think it's modestness of... Uh, <laughs> no, no, I, I think modesty would be like your attitude. and mod- You would say the modestness of uh, of the success. I, I think maybe that keeps us... Oh, okay,
2: us, okay, okay. I th-
1: maybe that keeps us from a higher folly because it keeps us from taking ourselves too seriously.
0: <laughs> you, you know? <laughs> it keeps us from flying too near the sun.
1: That's right, yeah. I, I think I'm probably <laughs> at my most foolish when I start to think of myself as being better than I am. So mm-hmm. the fact that all of my successes in life have been pretty small maybe keeps me from being too big of a fool. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe my wife would disagree.
2: <laughs> well, it's interesting. I And I, I've been trying to find this passage, and I'm just sure it's from Vonnegut, but I'm sure at some point I'm going to find it in Neil Postman or something. But he says that, uh, or I'm pretty sure it's Vonnegut who said that, uh, you know, in the days before radio, if you were the best storyteller in your village, you were as famous as you were going to get. And that it's, you know, only the age of mass communication that's given us the idea that we're nobody. Huh. And I, 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 I've taken that, even though I can't find the daggum thing in any books that I own. <laughs> I've, I've kind of taken that sentiment to kind of put into perspective the idea that okay, you know, there are more people who listen to this show than will ever get into a lecture hall to hear me speak, and that's mm-hmm. something.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the drive for. The drive for success is itself somewhat suspect, right? Because mm-hmm. success is notoriously difficult to define, and once you once you achieve it, and I mean we've been successful in a lot of ways. We have thousands of listeners. Um, yeah, my 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 wife informs me that we have more listeners than some public radio uh, podcasts. So, oh, that's sad. I, I mean, yeah, it is sad. <laughs> um, but but there's there's a part. of I, it I
2: really is. like PRI podcasts. <laughs> Well, you didn't, but anyway, go you didn't ahead. You'd have to
1: say the name of her organization, Nathan. Oh, Nathan. sorry, my now, bad. How we might get her in trouble? Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> you not know, not I, even
2: their code names.
1: <laughs> part, part of it. Part of me still looks at like Humbered Christianity and thinks, why don't we have tens of thousands of listeners? Uh, but that's <laughs> foolish, right? That's uh, yeah. that, that's 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 a dumb attitude because it keeps you from recognizing the ways in which you have succeeded. I don't, I'm teaching Death of a Salesman right now, so I'm thinking a lot about success.
2: Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've stopped teaching that partly just because of my teaching assignments, but also it seems like uh, every time I teach that book, either a car breaks down or I have to replace an appliance.
0: Or a salesman dies.
2: <laughs> that hasn't actually happened, but, oh, oh, you know. Okay. It just so, makes me that's...
1: want whipped cheese. <laughs>
2: I mean I mean since that's, you know, one of the factors that drives old Willie over the edge, I <laughs> I, I always think there's some kind of connection there. I'm probably superstitious that way. But
1: well I mean if you think of Willie as a fool, which I think mm-hmm. is which which I think is a uh, accurate reading of that play, he's a oh, fool yeah. specifically because he chases a success that he can't be bothered to define. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So be thankful for your failures, I guess, is the the, <laughs> the lesson I have for myself, not so much for anybody else.
2: Mhm. Good 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 good. How
1: else is this project foolish? I'm sorry, that wasn't a rhetorical question. I was actually asking you guys.
0: Well, I mean, we do uh uh we do make much out of small things often. All right. Uh, pick up things that might otherwise be considered trivia, and mm-hmm. uh, and dig into them. Um, you know. Also, you know, by standards of success, um, uh, we don't mon- We haven't monetized this, right? You know, this is mm-hmm. not. Uh, this 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 is literally something that we are doing, like Erasmus is writing in Praise of Folly. Um, in a lot of ways, we're doing this for fun mm-hmm. on the road, you know, uh, because there is uh, there is a pleasure in um, in playing with your learning, so to speak. Um, I, I, I do think a lot of the enjoyment that I get out of this is the sort of thing that he describes in the in the dedication. Mm-hmm. Um, does that does that make it foolish? Um, uh, maybe. Um, but, you know, kind of don't care. <laughs> well,
2: David, the encomium doesn't stay lighthearted forever, of course. Uh, and these are the passages that honestly people remember after they've read Praise of Folly, where Folly pulls out her sharpest daggers and starts sticking them in the academic theology of the day and of the church of the day more broadly. Uh, so what particular practices of Paris theologians and mendicant orders get the full Erasmus treatment in this text? And why do I have to keep reminding myself that this is Luther's great enemy in the bondage of the will? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, you have to keep reminding yourself of that because, uh, he really is going after, uh, a lot of the institutions, uh, of of the visible church of his day, uh, in a way that um, we associate, I think, wrongly, exclusively with the Protestant Reformation. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, we we ignore the degree to which a lot of these same institutions were being um, questioned, critiqued, uh, uh, even even held up for criticism um even in even in the centuries before Luther, um but without the attending notion that uh, that this would need to come to some kind of a head uh, in in terms of in terms of church communion. And even Luther, I don't think, um, saw all of that coming. I, I, you know, he wanted to have you know he was nailing things on a door so that he could have an academic argument um within the confines of academia mm. um about a theological topic not so that, not so that he could you know start a whole new trajectory of church right. history
2: in in a very straightforward geographic sense he posted it on a message board
0: yeah yeah literally um so you know part part of that, I think is accidental. and and criticism, self uh, criticism by the loyal sons and daughters of the church, of the institutional church, is actually one of the long and abiding traditions of the church. Mm-hmm. All right? um, only only apologists who um, mis- who who misidentify uh chauvinism jingoism with uh with loyalty would say otherwise um i mean and you can find the, some of the same kinds of things that uh that Erasmus is poking fun at in Chaucer a century before mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um or so Dante kinds of things. For that matter well- e- exactly exactly mm-hmm. and and you know do do we have a more loyal son of of you know holy church in, 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 in kind of the true and absolute. Um, so theologians, um, their character, they're hot tempered. Uh, they're inclined towards self love. Uh, they are protected by a wall of scholar, scholastic definitions, arguments, and corollaries. Uh, that is, uh, <laughs> they kind of wrap themselves in jargon, um, mm-hmm. as a kind of defense, Um, They explain the most mysterious matters to suit themselves. They take advantage of the fact that they're talking about obscure things in order to um, turn those obscure arguments in self-serving kinds of ways. Um, uh, He makes fun of the counterfactuals that they will argue in the scholastic schools. Um, Are there several sonships in Christ? Whether it, there is this uh, uh, there, this is a possible proposition. Does God the Father hate the Son? Could God the Father have taken upon himself the likeness of a woman, or a devil, an ass, a gourd, a piece of flint? A gourd? Then, yeah. And <laughs> yes. how would that gourd have preached, performed miracles, <laughs> been crucified? Right?
1: Would it have been baked into a pie after the crucifixion? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what would Peter have consecrated if he had administered the Eucharist while Christ's body hung on the cross? You know, so <laughs> this this kind of taking on of counterfactual or really kind of ridiculous um, suppositions in order to, uh, I, I, I guess, find, find space for new dissertations to happen? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, he, he, names names, the realist, the nominalist, the Thomas, the Albertist, the Occamist, the Scotists, um, uh, all of them arguing for their school. Um, uh, even the apostles themselves would need help from some, from some <laughs> other spirit. If they were trying to argue these topics with our new generation of theologians. All right. Um, and the and the ways that the theologians insist on their necessity for understanding, um, understanding scripture. And this is really really interesting because when Erasmus starts taking on um, Luther, one of the things that he argues for is is really the necessity of the of the great church tradition to understand the scriptures. That under, that the scriptures are this kind of mystery that is inaccessible to the ordinary person. Um, it doesn't have a kind of clarity to it that author that that Luther wants to argue, but in in praise of folly he makes fun of the theologians because the apostles teach grace and yet they never determine the difference between a grace freely given and one that makes one deserving. They urge us to do good works, but they don't separate good work, uh, work in general, work being done and work that's already finished and They inculcate charity, but they don't distinguish the infused charity from that which is acquired or state whether (laughs) charity is an accident or a substance created or uncreated, right? So one of the things that he pokes fun at is the theologians making themselves necessary and their fine distinctions necessary for the mere understanding of Scripture and its teachings um, in in ways that go far beyond... um, the letter of the apostles. Um, and at this point he seems to be making an argument. That's kind of like Luther's that mm-hmm. in a certain way, someone ought to be able to read the Bible and get it. Maybe not the full plumb, the fold ups of everything that is there, but at the same time, um, you know, the, the, the theologian seems to be a bit self-serving in their argument that, all of the all of their subtleties are necessary for even um, the slightest points to be established, um, and and all of this he sees as as self serving as 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 arrogant. The theologians are making too much of their of their role in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, he turns also to to these uh, the mendicant orders that you cited um, their, their ostentatious practices of, of public holiness, of public piety. Um, one monk will his exhibit his belly filled with a hundred kind of kinds of fish, which (laughs) because he's not eating flesh, right? You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not eating beef or pork or chicken. I'm eating fish, you know, but I've got this giant belly. Um, their knowledge of hundreds of hymns, their fasts, all of these kinds of things, and yet none of them, he says, are pers- are performing the works of mercy and charity which Christ actually demands in the gospel. Um, you know, these are these are people who are setting up artificial systems of meritorious work um, in the place of the plain demands of the gospel and priding themselves in being Bridgetines, Augustinians, Williamists, Jacobines, minors, (laughs) Minims, the crutched as if it were not enough to be called Christian (laughs) and all the different orders make sure that nothing in their lives will be uniform, nor is it so much their concern to be like Christ as it is to be unlike one another. And at this point, they sound often like modern, um, modern Catholics arguing about, uh, are arguing against Protestants on the mere, on, on, on the basis that there are just many kinds of Protestants. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Erasmus is making the same kind of argue argument against, um, uh, all of these different, uh, all of these different orders of, of monk. And in this case, uh, of mendicants, the friars, mm-hmm. uh, course he didn't wait long enough for the order of jesus to be formed formed and to kind of oh, cap it all off
2: and see that's funny I, I i wrote in my notes this is a stone campbell moment why can't we just be christians only but not the only christians
0: yeah well
2: <laughs> yeah
1: everything yeah. would be fine if everybody just did what my group does exactly exactly <laughs> and, uh, there's a there's a there's a woman running for christian there's a woman running for state senate in my district Mm-hmm. And uh one of the positions on her website is I'm against partisan bickering. I think we should all come together for reproductive rights and uh, and uh, something about science in the in the state capitol and I thought yeah well <laughs> no more partisan bickering everybody should just vote like Democrats oh yeah huh. yeah
2: I mean that's yeah an article that I responded to on christianhumanist.org a while ago that said that millennials are tire are tired of all the politics and Christianity and then went on on a paragraph long list of all the political positions that millennials insist on.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, Erasmus is, he's, he's echoing some of the same things, but he's not making the same points. Mm-hmm. Um, not, ex- not exactly. Uh, and, and, and one of the big examples, I, I think, is if Luther were critiquing the the mendicants boasting of their works, mm-hmm. he would have followed it up with, and that's why they need to turn to faith. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, mm-hmm. Erasmus says, and that is why they need to turn to the works of mercy and charity um, in feeding the poor, the orphan, visiting the the sick and the imprisoned, you know, and the, and the, and the, the, you know, the six and then seven works of charity that the middle ages, um, kind of listed out, you know, burying the dead was added on. Right. Mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that's his answer. Luther would say faith. Erasmus says, no, actually we've got a much simpler list.
2: Right. Right. Michael, I, I was wondering as I as I was reading through this, I mean, did you hear any uh I guess uh anticipations of something like Kierkegaard in here?
1: Yeah, and that that kind of general anti clerical attitude. I, I think mm-hmm. I think Kierkegaard probably opposes clerics on principle, whereas Erasmus is opposing <laughs> the abuse of them. But yeah, right, I think right. that's a good point.
2: Okay. Yeah, I mean I'll I'll admit my favorite part of this whole thing, uh and listeners I uh you know there's there's several, you know, uh public domain translations of this available on the internet, but when he goes after the sermons of the mendicants, that was my huh. absolute favorite. Uh simply because I mean I, I read these and I thought, oh my gosh, I have I've heard youth ministers do almost this. So I mean he <laughs> gives one one example of, you know, uh let's see here, uh, a monk of 80 years of age who gave a, an entire sermon on the fact that in Latin you have the nominative Jesus, the accusative yesum, and presumably the ablative yesu. and this clearly illustrates the threefold nature of God, because the first ends with S, showing, showing that he is the sum, the I am, the second one is M, showing that he is the media, and finally the third ends with the U, which is the ultima, so clearly, threefold nature of God in Hebrew, the name Jesus is a, uh, you know, a word with the letter sin in the middle, uh, which is, you know, one of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And Jesus is the one who takes the sin out of the middle of us. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I feel I, like I've heard these sermons.
1: Well, you know what? You know what grace is, right, Nathan? Uh oh! Here we go. God's riches at Christ's expense.
0: <laughs> now, there is, so yeah. There go is, ahead. Those though that gets that gets made fun of. You know, um, I, I've heard I've heard people cite this, and I've heard people make fun of this. You know, atonement is really at one atonement, right? Except, mm. except that that's actually etymologically the case in English.
2: Yeah, that oh, is really. Yeah, yeah it actually is a native English word, and it is I mean a neologism for making things one. yeah, yeah.
0: that's interesting I,
2: yeah. I, 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 david I used to make fun of that too until I discovered you know what uh, is it was it Wycliffe that was that kind of coined that phrase or was
0: it an earlier figure? I, I can't remember who's responsible for it all I remember but it's a,
2: but it's a is, middle english figure yeah
0: is is that I used to make fun of it, and then I looked it up in the <laughs> OED and holy crap, it was there yeah. and,
1: Did you call and, your youth minister and apologize?
0: no, no well it wasn't it wasn't when a youth minister I think it was an I can't remember when the argument was, but I remember being um yeah,
1: but yeah uh, it is, is gracefully an home. acronym.
0: Thrown from
2: my no grace is not no, no, no. <laughs> nice, nice. Oh uh, <laughs> well, anyway, th- this is probably the Erasmus text that most people have heard of, if they've even heard of Erasmus. Uh, so our brief treatment here isn't going to get all of the relevant passages, as our diggers, no, as our readers and actually <laughs> our listeners, dig into this encomium as I embody folly here, uh, which bits are going to be most interesting, most profitable, most foolish. Uh, let's take it around the horn here. Michael, what passage would you point out to our readers?
1: We're at an hour, so I'm going to go real fast. Uh, early okay. on, Folly declares herself utterly authentic. Here's what she says. I am no counterfeit, nor do I carry one thing in my looks and another in my breast. No, I am in every respect so like myself that neither can they dissemble me who arrogate to themselves the appearance and title of wise men and walk like asses in scarlet hoods. I uh, really love scarlet. Um, in our age that values authenticity so highly, it's worth remembering that not all authenticity is good and that it's better to be wise than authentic.
2: Very good. David, what do you got?
0: Uh, he's got some of the same kinds of critiques of the papacy and the hierarchy in here. Um, uh, in, in particular, um, abuses of papal authority with bulls and excommunications and all the rest of that. And he says, why can't the Pope kind of step in and, you know, shepherd people? I mean, that's, that's, I thought that was what the job description was, but, uh, no, he only seems to be interested in thundering from the throne of Peter. Um, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: yeah. So there's, there's some, uh, some critique of, uh, all the, his critique goes all the way to the top not just the Academy and the friars.
2: Very good. Well, I'm going to go to the top of the other tower. He issues a criticism of Kings and rulers that Mm -hmm. I found fascinating because the, and this is really the satirical part, less of the copia part, uh, where he says, where she folly says that the symbols of scepter and crown and throne, uh, have at their roots, a certain notion of aristocratic virtue, of the goodness of a king that should be shining out. And the great travesty is that these people who inherit these thrones uh, don't do so on the base of any of that kind of excellence. Uh, It is almost a, and I'd say it probably is, a platonic critique of those inherited kingships Uh, that, again, is very unusual for the guy you think of as the anti-Luther Well, at any rate, guys, uh, this is something like a milestone episode. Uh, We were going to do it as number 200, but it's 201, which is a bit of folly on its own right, which I kind of dig. So Uh I want to end with a little bit of self-indulgence here, or at least a bit of self-mockery. One of our ongoing dispositions on this show is that we take the question at hand seriously, and ourselves not at all. Hmm. Uh, Listeners, you've probably heard us say that at some point or read it on our website. So, looking back over seven years of podcasts, let's each name a moment in our own podcast careers when we were the best devotees of Folly. So, as not to upstage you two, I'll let David go first and then pass it to Michael.
0: Oh, me. I I racked my brain about this one. Um, there have been a number of occasions in which, um, I made with incredible confidence egregious factual errors, um... (laughs) I've tended to try to note those in the co- in the show note comments section. Um, so, you know, if you ever happen to listen to an episode and Grubbs opens his mouth and pontificates Blarney, um, uh, please, please be charitable and look up the show notes and see whether or not I found out I was wrong and apologized. Um, cause I do try to, um, but yeah, that's some of my own folly. Um, probably the biggest embrace of folly that I can remember is uh, we did a whole episode on Monty Python's Holy Grail. Um, mm. you know, which, you know, that was, I, I, I feel like that was an, 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 epic exercise in, um, scholarship done for the fun of it. Uh, where, where would you take this, Michael?
1: Well, our first seven or eight episodes in their entirety, I think. Um, but in in particular, we did an episode early on, and I remember criticizing Brian McLaren for being too cool, and uh, that that has haunted my mind, if not my email <laughs> box, ever since then. I think about it twice, three times a week.
2: Oh, fascinating. Uh, interestingly enough, mine also has to do with Brian McLaren, and it, it happened after I wrote a review of his book, uh, a new kind of Christianity on Christian org, And, uh, he wrote a post about my blog post, never named me, never linked to my post, but, uh, you know, a lot of his, uh, followers went ahead and did that work for him. And as I remember, and I don't remember what episode number this was, uh, I actually, uh, did a Hulk Hogan style pro wrestling promo challenging Brian McLaren to step into the ring with me. Uh, so I, I, I have to think that that's a, a moment of folly. What do you guys think?
1: Uh, I'm speechless. I thought it was a <laughs> moment of
0: excellence in broadcasting.
1: <laughs> Since you brought it up earlier, we got to talk about the stupid numbering system we use on this show. Oh, gosh, yeah. Wherein if we don't have three people, we call it a .1 episode, and thus it is almost impossible to uh, know how many episodes we've done
2: right and and i'll go ahead and take the blame for that one that was my idea i thought it was going to be this noble gesture one of you two couldn't record one day and i said well it isn't a real episode without all three of us so we'll make it episode 7.1 or whatever number it was
1: yeah
2: (laughs) oh and has that ever haunted us
0: (laughs) yeah oh man too late to turn back now
2: it really is it really is I I I, i believe
0: i believe i'm falling in love
2: but just like, uh, you know, the, uh, the venerable tradition of, you know, letting the author have the last word on profiles. It's something that, you know, one day we had an idea and now it's become the tradition, yeah. <laughs> which I, which I think is, is at least one of the more amusing species of folly in our little project.
0: Well, that one works pretty well, I think. Okay. The, oh, the, no, no, no. the, last, the last word thing. Yeah, I think that's pretty good.
2: Oh, I just mean the fact that, you know, we are kind of inventing this as we go and the things that we least expect become our traditions.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well,
1: you, listen to, you, you listen to any podcast in its first year and you, you see them trying a lot of things that don't get carried over. I mean, we used mm-hmm. to have a segment at the beginning of the show where we would talk about what was on the blog. Except now the oh only thing gosh. that's on the blog is show notes because none of us post anything. Who, right. Who right. has time to write things that aren't uh, aren't for for uh, print publication? Yeah. Um, I, I'm trying to think of some other things we used to do. I used to change the theme music every week, but man, that's a hassle. And now that we have other people editing, it seems unfair to ask them to do that.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then also we're afraid of like copyright issues.
1: <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. Oh, oh, and then the, uh, the uh, ex-cathedra pronouncements.
1: I imagine if we had anything to ex-cathedrally pronounce, we would do it again.
2: Okay, so you, that one's still alive, it's just sleeping. Yeah, only, we, yeah, no, we made
1: what? The only one I remember is that we said that uh, women aren't allowed to break up with men because God told them to. <laughs> and
2: mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, I think okay, we can said... Can we vice versa uh, that one?
1: Uh, yeah, 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 I'm sorry. I, people aren't allowed to break up with people.
2: Yeah. I think yeah. that's fair enough. I think that's fair enough. And I can't remember the other ones either. So I, <laughs> well, at any rate, listeners, uh, you know, I hope that you have, uh, you know, humored us here as we've walked down memory lane for a moment. Uh, our next show will not be a milestone episode, but it will be a good one because I won't be at the wheel. Michael will. <laughs> and Michael, what are we digging into?
1: In honor of Bob Dylan's Nobel Prize, we're going to be talking about his 1965 album, Highway 61 Revisited.
0: Ooh.
2: Very good, very good. Well, listeners, uh, thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Uh, Remember that you can leave us reviews over at iTunes. Uh, That is the number one distributor of podcasts. And so every time you subscribe, every time you leave a review, every time you give us some stars over there, some more listeners might just come along our way. You can also find show notes and leave comments at christianhumanist.org. We also have a Facebook page that a lot of you comment on, and we enjoy that a great deal. Uh, you can, of course, also email us at christianhumanist at gmail.com. Christian Humanist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Amber Lee Copeland is our audio editor. And I am Nathan Gilmore in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.